Blog Talk Radio. You're listening to The Catch with John Fisher on Blog Talk Radio, connecting life to faith. We're just trying to get it together, trying to help the fellow man, hoping we can make Well, it's Tuesday night, and it's time for Blog Talk Radio, and that's what we're all trying to do here. We're trying to make make it better. We're trying to make the world a better place, and that, that happens through us finding out what it truly means to follow Christ. And uh, uh, our Tuesday night uh, discussions are so helpful because we're able to talk to a, a wide spectrum of people who are in the world seeking to have uh, to follow Christ and have a vital faith in in the middle of 2021. And and that let me tell you, folks, that's not an easy thing to do. Um, and that's what will make especially today very exciting because uh, we want we want to look at some of that. Uh, in light of how Christianity has uh, has changed and, and taken on so many ramifications in the last oh, 20, 30 years, and especially the last few years politically, that, um, boy, it's a, it's a challenge. And uh, help, here to help us work through that is uh, an adult pastor from... Uh, well, no, I, she, of course she's an adult, but she's a pastor to <laughs> adults at uh, Highland Park United Methodist Church in Dallas, Texas. Uh, we're so glad to have with us today, Hannah Buchanan. Hannah, welcome to Blog Talk Radio. <laughs> Thanks, John. <laughs> uh Hannah, um, I'm, I'm, I'm really fascinated in, in just uh, finding out a little bit more about you tonight. And uh, so why, why, don't we, why don't we go back to the beginning and uh, uh, our, our similar roots we just found out uh, at Wheaton College, uh, only 40 years apart. We just, just <laughs> missed each other. <laughs> um, and... Uh, uh, I'm curious as to, um, you know, what, what took you, what were some of the steps that took you from, from, uh, from Wheaton college to, uh, adult pastor at a Methodist church in Dallas, Texas. Sure. So, so I am from Dallas originally and did not plan to head to the Midwest and certainly not to a Christian school. Uh, I had my heart set on the University of Texas and was enrolled and planning to go. And then the day before I graduated from high school, I had this really strange feeling of like, why did I say no to Wheaton? I couldn't have explained it. I had burnt orange towels. I had my sorority stuff in. I was set to go to Austin. And I, I'd never experienced a stirring like that before. And I thought, maybe this is God. I don't know how God talks to us like this. But I prayed about it and said, okay, Lord, if you want me to go to Wheaton, then 
have them take me back. So I prayed about it, called them the Tuesday they opened back up, and my admissions counselor said, oh, Hannah, the Texas girl that broke my heart, tell me you're calling because you've changed your mind and want to come to Wheaton. (laughs) So um, that's how I went from Dallas to Wheaton, and then when I was in Wheaton, I thought I wanted to be a doctor. I thought I wanted to be a therapist. I loved my theology classes, but I had no vision for a career in theology at that point, coming from um, Southern evangelical churches, and uh, ended up studying economics with a minor in biblical studies. I knew I wanted to help people, but I didn't know the way forward. And then while I was at Wheaton, I endured a pretty significant loss. I lost my dad to suicide, which really shook the foundation of certainly our family, but mm. kind of the, the stu- brought me back to the studs of my faith of, um, is God good? What could God be trusted for if the bottom can fall out like this? Mm. And um, sort of limped out of college thinking, I don't know where I'm going to land. I didn't want to work in finance or business. I knew I wanted to make a difference. And quite honestly, I was kind of tired of being around all Christians. I wanted to do something out in the world. And so I joined a program called Teach for America, which um, takes college grads and places them in low-income community schools in effort to close what we call the achievement gap. So I went to study, I mean, I went to work in Chicago public schools for four years, uh, again, with no intent of working in ministry until my husband and I ended up at this church that was co-pastored by a husband and wife. And Mm. I'd never seen a woman preach. I didn't know women could lead in significant ways in church. And it was like this moment for me in a church that loved Jesus and held scripture in a very sacred place that allowed women to teach and lead alongside men. It was like this moment of there was room for me. I had Mm. no idea this was an option. And that really set my journey into motion. Wow. Wow. Um, Tell me some about that experience uh, in the schools in, in Chicago. What, what, uh, what, what did that teach you? Um, Yeah. Yeah. So I taught on the South side, I taught middle school special education and Um, I went in with very unrealistic expectations, thinking I could be this hero that would lift children out of poverty starting in the sixth grade. And I learned a lot about myself. First of all, it's extremely humbling to show up every day and do something that you're not very good at until you get good at it. Mm. That's the first thing. It just was kind of a grinding experience. I think millennials expect that we're going to be these world changers. And then you get put into the position of changing the world and really difficult circumstances. What kind of of racial situation was, was that? uh, Yeah. So I taught in a, it, it's part of Lawndale at South Lawndale called little village, La Villita. And it's a primarily Hispanic community. My Hmm. students were mostly first generation immigrants, maybe second generation And what I found teaching special education is that most of my students actually didn't have a learning disability. They just missed the season of their schooling where they would be taught English or taught phonics. And once you really hit that third grade reading level, you just get left behind if you never learned how to put letters together and read words. Mm. So they were bright. They were curious. They were interested, but didn't have the right building blocks to succeed in school. Mm. 
Wow. So, um, tell tell me, uh, you told me a story uh, uh, that happened during that time that taught you. Yeah. A lot about. Yeah. I'd love you to share that with our with our audience. Yeah. Okay. So I left Wheaton really tired of living in a Christian bubble. I needed to know if Jesus made any difference in the world. At that point, after my time at Wheaton, I didn't really know anybody who didn't believe what I believed anymore. And I just needed to pressure test it. So I knew I wanted to work with people who were different than I was. And um, I'll say two things about it, which will probably contradict each other. But as I developed this community of colleagues through Teach for America and through my school uh, teachers, I learned that Jesus does make a difference in very significant ways, uh, both in terms of um, persistence and hope and where we get our hope from and how we connect and relate to students uh, and offering grace to each other and to myself. But what I was very surprised by is um, a moment I had in a conference room with a bunch of other teachers who were not Christians. They were people who before I would have put in sort of this other category. They were Jewish, Muslim, gay, atheist. And we were having a conversation about race. And I remember looking around and thinking, these people all care a whole lot more about the poor than I do. Hmm. I mean, they are passionate to the bones about giving these children opportunities. They love Hmm. them deeply and they're fighting passionately. I Hmm. think Jesus had something to say about this. What did I miss? (laughs) <laughs> and I, I, you know, I grew up in very faithful communities. I went on mission trips, but in my mind, what I had been exposed to in terms of poverty was in other people's cities or mm. even countries. Um, I had never been taught to think about racial injustice inside the church. In fact, talking about race felt sort of like a liberal agenda rather than a Christian agenda. Mm. And it was like my eyes were open to this way of seeing I hadn't known existed before. So it really prompted me to go back to scripture and find what I hadn't read before. And, and actually the book that I started with was Tim Keller's Generous Justice, How God's Grace Makes Us Just. And I remember reading through the prophets, the major and minor prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Amos, Micah, and one in particular, I think it's an Amos, I'm not looking at my text right now, but talking about how God says, I despise your worship celebrations, your festivals, your music, your loud gongs. And in my mind, I thought like, oh my gosh, he's writing about contemporary rock music. <laughs> and he says, um, like, what I want is for you to care for the orphan and the widow and to seek justice for the oppressed. Like, I don't care about your visible demonstrations of worship on Sunday. I care about what you're doing for the least of these, because that is where I am. And that was really the start of a shift for me in how I understood what it meant to live out the gospel in full. Wow. Are you able now, I can see how that would work, especially in that particular environment. Now mm-hmm. you're in Dallas and you're in a, you know, very large uh, church, uh, mainline church. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. How does that work there? I, I, I personally, I think, Hannah, that uh, I'm really glad to hear you talking about this because I think Christians throughout my whole my whole experience even back to the Jesus movement 
uh, of the 70s, 60s and 70s, I do think we missed out on justice. I, I just, I don't think we got it. And we were so gospel oriented, you know, get it, get people saved and, and into heaven. But, uh, you know, the whole idea uh, of justice, which is so important to the Lord, you know, uh, and in scripture, all over scripture, uh, love and justice and mercy and you know uh how do we miss that and 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 how does that how do we experience that now how does that work out in your life now yeah it's a great question Uh, so um you know i told you i had this moment at this church in chicago seeing this woman preach um i didn't end up going to seminary after that i went to grad school for social work thinking okay god like i'll 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 go into ministry if you want, but I don't know what the pathway is. I had a bunch of theological training already. And I thought you've sort of set me on this path to work with and advocate for the poor. I'll keep doing it. So I went to school for social work here in Dallas, which is where I'm from and um, pay for school, took a job as a secretary at this church in East Dallas. And it was kind of a startup church campus of this big old historic Methodist church, which is the church I now work at. But I did not plan to go and work in a big, wealthy, predominantly white church. It really was the Lord kind of leading these cookie trump trails. And if you had told me when I was a grad student getting my social work degree that I would be working at one of the largest, wealthiest, most powerful Methodist churches in the country, I would have sort of laughed. I mean, that's not where social workers train to go and work. Mm-hmm. So to your question of what does it look like to pursue justice in a context of wealth, I shouldn't say in the context of wealth, in the context of people who have so much to offer the world when it comes to wealth and power and opportunity, what does that look like? Um, I would say we have an amazing impact team that is constantly looking for ways to partner in the city and to make connections, not just so that we can give money, so that, but so that we can forge genuine relationships between people who live in our part of town and people who live in South Dallas. We believe real transformation happens in relationship, much like mine did when I was teaching. Um, but for me in my particular spot, you know, I lead in a contemporary worship environment. I preach occasionally. I get to teach and lead Bible studies. I think it's part of the lens by which I read scripture now. And therefore, it plays out um, in the stories that we pull from and how we interpret. Like, I'll give you an example. We were preaching out of the Gospel of Luke one summer, and I picked Luke 12, which is the parable of the rich fool. Um, and it, it's the story about, you know, a guy who his brother won't share the inheritance. So he goes to Jesus and Jesus says, well, what, you know, what do you want me to do about it? And the brother says, well, tell my brother to give me my part of the inheritance. And Jesus goes on to tell this brilliant story about a man who had so much money, he was anxious and unhappy and didn't know what to do. And so he said, I know I'll tear down my barn and build a bigger one. I'm going to, you know, I'm going to like renovate my house to have more room. And he dies before the house gets completed. And as I was preaching this passage, I thought like, I know what this looks like to preach to a not wealthy community, right? Like we can all scold the rich man for saying, Yeah, how dare you build a bigger house when you had plenty to begin with? 
Mm-hmm. But what does it look like to preach this in a congregation where people do this all the time? They tear down their house and build bigger ones. Um, I think wow. what it comes down to is not using shame or guilt as a tactic, but recognizing that our stuff actually keeps us bound up in chains. You know, hmm. this man had so much and his response wasn't gratitude and throwing a huge party for everybody in the city. He was anxious. Um, and so helping people understand that our stuff isn't where our security is. Hmm. And you actually get more of God when you live outside of those limits, when you practice sacrificial giving, when you move up close with the poor. Um, but I'll tell you, honestly, it's an internal struggle of mine to know what it looks like to pursue justice and fight for the poor from within a wealthy community. Yeah. Boy, it is so, we are so divided and Mm -hmm. so separated from one another. And uh, boy, that, that's taken so many forms lately uh, in in so many ways, you know, I mean, politically and uh, culturally, we're, we're just all separated. Um, it becomes really hard uh, to know how do you live out your faith um, mm-hmm. in, in the middle of this, this environment. I know you're trying to help. I, I know you're trying to help your, your congregation there do that. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, can, can you tell us maybe some of the things that you're doing, some of the things that you've learned, perhaps, uh, I understand you have a, you have a podcast called let me in, um, tell us a little bit about that and then, and then how, how you're helping people to, uh, find a, a real faith in such a fragmented, uh, culture that we live in today. Yeah. So when the quarantine hit and everybody sort of had to go in hiding in their own homes, you know, it's a really weird time to try to do church. Church is people gathering together. And when you can't gather, what do you have left? So um, I do feel like it was kind of one of those like hit you on the back of the head ideas or moments where I felt like, well, I should start a podcast and really invite people to connect with each other and to connect their faith to what's happening in the world. So, um, the title let me in really was a practical way of in an era where we're closing our doors on everybody, let people into your conversation and your life and your thinking. And then um, actually letting, how do you let Jesus into all of these different sectors of your life, knowing that when we follow him, it should work its way into how we work and how we date and how we parent and all of these ways. So I think I'm about 33 episodes in at this point, and I have had so much fun having conversations about what it looks like to be faithful in our current culture. So I had a guest a few weeks ago who's the um, publisher and president of the Dallas Morning News, which is our major newspaper here, mm-hmm. talking about how to, and he's a really committed believer, but how do we stay committed to truth in a culture where all truth seems relative and we can't even agree on facts. So we talked about um, what are the responsible ways that we should consume our media? 
how do we do this well and keep our brains intact without just choosing to hear whatever opinions we want reinforced on whatever side we live on. So that's been fun. Um, I have had several conversations, particularly back last summer after the killings of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor about racial justice. And I think, you know, to your original question, how do I engage our congregation to fight for justice? This has really been a gift um, to, to have these conversations because I feel like some of these conversations are so vulnerable and hard to have, you know, to admit for me as a white woman in Dallas to admit all of the ways I fall short when it comes to racial justice in a forgiving space with a guest who is a woman of color, I think it gives other people both a model of how do you have these conversations and then permission to go out and try it when the stakes feel so high. You know, when you look at our culture, we're so quick to cancel each other and spew vitriol and hatred. And so if this podcast can be a way to create spaces with lots of grace, of you know, it's worth pursuing the hard questions and the good things, even if we're going to mess up along the way. Wow. Wow. That's encouraging. Uh, you know, you ended up uh, earlier on, not, uh, not thinking that there was a place for you as, as a woman mm-hmm. in ministry. And, um, and, and now here you are. Um, how is that working out? And, uh, <laughs> You find do you find yourself accepted uh, by people, and and or is there still a, a somewhat of a struggle uh, in that in yeah. in the gender reality of being a woman pastor? Yeah, um, yeah. As I mentioned, I didn't have a model for women in ministry beyond really administrative roles or children's ministry. And so didn't pursue that as a degree at Wheaton, even though my theology professors were very affirming and sort of spoke several times, you should go to seminary, you should go to seminary. I just, you know, I didn't know what was beyond that. And then I had this experience in Chicago at our church called Soul City and um, was in a small group that this woman was leading about leadership. And I prayed in the quiet of her living room one night, like, okay, Lord, if you really want me to be a pastor, give Jeannie a message to the Holy Spirit and have her tell me, which those are like the prayers we're not supposed to pray, right? We don't test God that way, but I needed it to be abundantly clear because there was no roadmap for me. And about a month later we met for coffee and she said, Hey, I've been praying about it. And I feel a prompting from the Holy Spirit to tell you that you should be a pastor, which was very bizarre and unsettling. So naturally I went to school for social work instead. (laughs) But, um, you know, in God's irony, I became a secretary at this campus of Highland Park United Methodist Church working for uh, a campus pastor who's a man who gave me so much freedom to explore and try different things. And, you know, he would leave for his summer vacation and we would have guest preachers. And one day I just said, hey, what would it take for you to be willing to let me preach while you're gone? And he let me do it. Mm. Um, And I found in that moment, well, I'll never forget what he said. I was really nervous about preaching to men because I was worried what they would think about me. Mm -hmm. I had a lot of Bible church baggage about women and how men perceive women and 
you know, what we should and shouldn't wear on stage to tempt men or all these things. And I'll never forget Andrew said, Anna, just be excellent. Men value excellence. So be excellent. And that stuck with me because I figured, okay, I'm going to do this the very best I know how and trust God with the results. So then our senior minister at the main campus invited me over in, you know, my current role to lead in, in this way. And I would say, I feel like it's been such an act of God that he placed me in a church where I don't have to fight the battles of being a woman in ministry. And I know that is not the case for most of my sisters, at least in Dallas, but for me at Highland Park United Methodist Church, I have found myself surrounded both by women who have lived into their calling and are, and are living it out and by men who share a vision of what it looks like for men and women to partner in the unique ways God has gifted us, who see my value, not just as a Bible teacher or preacher or strategist, but who see that actually, like, because I'm a woman, I offer something unique in that set of giftings to the church. And it's important for the body of Christ, both male and female, to hear from women. And so I have felt so affirmed and encouraged in that way. Wow. That is great. That is so encouraging. And uh, so, so God uh, took you, God answered that prayer, didn't he? He, he, Yes. Yes. (laughs) He he made a way where there was no visible way. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. yeah, Like a bat, like you say, a back. Oh my. Um, You have, I hear you have some rather, uh, famous celebrities or people that we would know that uh, that are members of your church or that attend regularly. Is that right? Oh yeah, I guess so. <laughs> I don't know. Is it poor form to disclose who that is? Um, we, let's see. Um, well, I don't know. It's like the weird part about being part of such a formal, uh, like institutional church. We're right next to the campus of SMU. So in terms of Dallas history, um, There are a lot of people historically who have been connected to this church, but this is where, um, you know, President Bush Bush historically worshipped even before he was president. W, Mm -hmm. not HW. Um, Mm -hmm. I got to interview Clayton Kershaw, the Dodgers pitcher this year, because he's a congregant. Um, Ah. You know, for a a season, Troy Aikman came here. (laughs) (laughs) We got all stripes. I will say what I love about working in this church in particular, and I think you you talked about how we're divided. This is really unusual, I think, for a church um, to hold space for people who are on the left and the right politically. Hmm. And I think that's been pretty intentional by our senior leadership and our primary communicators that um, we, we believe Jesus is not a Republican or a Democrat. He actually paves a third way, and we're a big tent church. So um, I think that's part of what makes this community of faith different from many churches in Dallas is that there's room for, there's room for gray. And there's not a lot that we draw lines on in black and white. Mm. We believe that God is, God is okay living in the tension with us of our questions and our interpretation. And I know some people would criticize that maybe as being lukewarm or, you know, cowardly on certain things, but we very much believe that, you know, if we become our own echo chamber, we're probably not preaching the complete gospel. 
And we, you know, we mm-hmm. joked about being equal opportunity offenders that if you're a Democrat and you're offended one Sunday, stick with us long enough and you'll hear us poke fun at a Republican shortly after. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. I like that <laughs> for mm-hmm. sure. Oh mm-hmm. gosh. Well, uh, you know, how, how do you suppose uh, our time is getting short now, but um, I'm wondering how do you, how do people, how do you think people outside of the church, uh, uh, like people in your community, how do they view, mm-hmm. how do they view your church? You have any ideas on that line? Yeah. Oh gosh. Mm-hmm. Oh, I think there's probably two camps of people. One who sees the words Highland Park in front of whatever letters might follow and think, oh, that's just a rich white church. Mm. Um, you know, Highland Park is a very elite community here in Dallas, historically very white and very wealthy. And I think there's probably a whole camp of people who just write us off as a rich mainline church. That's kind of Mm -hmm. irrelevant. And I would say those people are usually the ones who have never been here or listened to a message and don't know our impact in the city. Mm. Um, And I carried a lot of those biases in with me. And that's Mm -hmm. really what I would have thought growing up in this city when I looked at this, you know, at this building, this corner of the city. I am more and more surprised by how many people hear about where I work and say, you guys have been the best partners at places like Austin Street Shelter or City Square or Habitat for Humanity. Like they hear about the ways that we are using our power to fight poverty in the city. And that's one thing. Um, Or I would say like for people who have a small taste who maybe come once, I'm usually surprised by how they say they just felt really accepted and engaged with and not talked at. I think, I think we tend to defy people's expectations given the stereotype of Highland Park. Wow. Wow. So you can, you can go to a a Highland Park church and be a real Christian. Yeah, (laughs) I think so. And I think you can go to a, you know, conservative Bible church and also be a Christian and also not really be a Christian. I think, you know, we, it's so possible to carry your Christianity as an ID card rather than as a practice of following Jesus mm-hmm. as a, as an ongoing evolving process of transformation. And um I think I've been so disappointed to find sinners inside the church as well as outside the church. I kind of thought, you know, I kind of thought, gosh, shouldn't we have it all together? But that's not the point. I mean, we're here because we're broken. If anything, we have the edge on the rest of the world saying, no, we know we don't have this together. This is why we need Jesus. It's why we need authentic community, a place to be known and exposed so that we can grow. And we don't have it all together. That's great. That's great. Well, any can you do you have any final words for uh our our people who are you know trying to live out uh, a christian a, a real life of following christ in the middle of the world uh right now just just any kind of last uh, words of encouragement uh what would you say what has god been been putting on your heart yeah, yeah. i've been so discouraged when i look at the world and see examples of Christians who have just crumbled or fallen short. I feel like it's kind of a really embarrassing time to have the Christian brand. Um, 
you know, when you look at scandals like the Hillsong pastor or Ravi Zacharias or even how politicized the very far right is mm-hmm. as it's kind of embedded with Christianity. And what has kept, yeah, I've had so many moments where I thought, why am I doing this still? I mean, we are weird. We have, we have got something wrong with us. And the thing that keeps me going is to actually continue looking at Jesus. Mm. You know, when I look at the ways we have failed, it's just so easy to say, I don't want anything to do with these people, but to look at Jesus and to look at his mercy and to to like mine scripture for these universal truths. You know, we've been doing these reading plans last fall and now through Genesis and Exodus and mining these ancient stories for modern truth. It's been so powerful and it provides this counterbalance for me of like, I can't walk away. Like I don't know where else I would go. So I would say if you're feeling discouraged and you feel on the margins and ready just to just trash the whole thing because we're so messed up, don't let go of Jesus just because mm. the people who follow Jesus are doing it so poorly mm. and find people who are doing it well in quiet, faithful ways. Find people who are being a good neighbor, find people who are being good mothers um, and watch them and follow them knowing that we're all struggling along in this together. And that at the end of the day, we're not doing this because we think we can get it right. We're doing it right because Jesus did it right. <laughs> Uh, it's beautiful. Hannah, thank you so much. This has been really a delightful half hour, and, and I really appreciate your perspective on so many things. Thank you for uh, spending your time with us. Well, thanks for having me. It was a pleasure. Yeah, and may, 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 God, may God bless your, your, your uh, ministry and where it goes from here, and, uh, and your Let Me In podcast. That sounds so much fun. So we'll have to. Thank uh, you. Thanks. You can find it on Apple Podcasts if you're interested. Great. Great. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Thanks, John. Hannah, how would we find that if we wanted to? to, to Yeah. If you go to Apple Podcasts Mm -hmm. and just search Let Me In or Hannah Buchanan, you will find it on there. And um, you can download it. You can subscribe. If you like it, leave a review, share it with people. It's still pretty new. So, um, or you can follow me on social, on Instagram. I'm at Han Buchan, so H-A-N-B-U-C-H-A-N. And I post about the podcast on there. Fantastic. Hannah, thank you so much. You bet. Have a great evening. Thank you. God bless. Bye. Well, how was that, folks? That was great. Lots to think about. Following Jesus, keeping it real. Amen. God bless you guys. See you next week. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.